Let me go ahead and pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we open up this conversation on forgiveness, may your presence even now be whispering to us. May even now you be speaking to us, Lord, about who or what that forgiveness is, what that debt is that we've been carrying, and what kind of release you may have for us, even this Sunday, Lord, as we lean in. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, That was beautiful and uh, such a wonderful setup for this conversation. As you can maybe tell, uh, we're going we're gonna to lean in. This, this could get a little real, uh, but before we, we lean in too deep, I, I just can begin with a somewhat silly study uh, that was done a few years ago. Now, I've been mentioning the last couple weeks uh, various studies that occur. I'm into studies. I find studies interesting, but I have to say some are stranger than others, and this study asked participants to either think about a time they had forgiven someone or a time that they had not yet forgiven someone and then jump as high as they could, okay? So imagine you get asked to participate in a study and you show up and they ask you to think, think about a time in your life when you've forgiven someone or a time when you hadn't and then you're supposed to jump. Now, here's what's interesting. On average, they found that the people who were thinking about the times they had forgiven jumped 11.8 inches as opposed to those who were thinking about times they had not forgiven who only jumped 8.5 inches on average, which means that if you think about a time you had forgiven someone, you could jump, in theory, three inches higher. Now, isn't that useful? I'm sure all of us can apply that to our lives. It feels really practical. And yet, what is interesting, and the reason why I begin with this study, uh, besides just loving studies, uh, is that this study highlights an interesting trend that is being confirmed from all different angles, particularly in the psychology and neuroscience world. And that trend is telling us over and over and over again that when we experience some kind of pain that leads us to either hold a a grudge or feel some sort of relational disconnect or have some sort of brokenness sitting relationally in our lives, that, that externalized relationship actually has a bodily effect on us. In fact, in 2014, a landmark study was released that set the psychology world ablaze. I don't know if all of you know this, but my wife trained as a mental health therapist, was working in trauma care for a while, so she was very connected to this conversation, and that's sort of how I heard about it. There was a Dutch psychologist who was working out of Harvard, and he'd collected 30 years of data, and all of his data was suggesting, as he studied trauma and PTSD, that his findings indicated what the title of his book would be, and that title was simply, The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the the score. So what he said and suggested was that when you experience a traumatic event, when something happens where a relationship breaks, now now trauma is very complex. Trauma can be everything from what we maybe typically think about, veterans coming home from a war who suffer from PTSD, that's trauma. Uh, Someone who experiences some form of extreme abuse in their life, that's certainly trauma. But trauma, they've found, can also be all the way over here in sort of a smaller scale. Trauma can be uh, a work relationship that isn't solved. Trauma can be a prolonged period of stress in your body. Uh, Trauma could be family tensions that are not 
resolving themselves. And so in this whole spectrum, as they've been studying the human brain, as they've been working out relationships, what they've seen is that trauma sits in your body. It actually lingers with you. So a study like this, a silly study where people are being asked to jump, and they're either reflecting on times when their body has been released or healed from trauma, or times when their body is still connected to trauma, they're seeing you're actually weighed down by the memories, by the periods, by the relationships of brokenness that have lingered in your life. Uh, one way I've heard it described, and this is the last I'll talk about trauma, we're going to move on to relationships. Uh, trauma is a bit like a flash on a camera. So most of us live most of our days experiencing memories that are a bit like taking a photo on our iPhone, right? If you take a photo on your iPhone, now most of us, if you've got phones, maybe it's not an iPhone, maybe it's an Android, we're, we're taking so many photos in a day that for me, I'm maybe a good, on a good day, like one out of 10 is worth keeping, right? A lot of my photos are, are of food or receipts or of boring things. Uh, and then even if I'm trying to take a photo of a person, it's blurry, it's it's just what it is. And so our memories are much like this. We have lots of memories in a day, and most of us are releasing most of those memories. We're forgetting a lot of what's taking place. But if something significant happens, it's like a flash in our brain where the memory is going to linger. Uh, the colors are going to be a little bit brighter. So you probably don't remember the last time that you went on, uh, let's say, a vacation, but you might remember quite clearly the first time you went to Disney World. Right? You, you might not remember if you're married the last time that a kiss occurred between you and your spouse, but you probably do remember the first kiss you ever had. This is how memory works. If it's significant, if it's important, our brain captures it vividly. Now, here's what uh, the body keeps the score suggested in this study by psychologist Bessel van der Kilk. He suggests that in their studies of trauma, when we have a relationship break, it's almost like the flash bulb on a camera sears too bright. Have you ever been standing there in the old school days when the camera would flash and you'd see almost the colors linger over your eyes where the bulb was? Or if you were ever one of those children that, like me, decided it might be interesting to look up at the sun. Why does everyone tell me not to look at the sun? I would really like to know what happens if I look at the sun. And there you glance and your eyes feel this sort of searing effect, right? The light is far too bright. This is what trauma is doing to our memories. It sears our brain, and our brain starts to function around the trauma. We actually start to have our brain work in such a way to avoid maybe places or phrases or relationships that feel like they could be connected to that one relationship, that one experience, that one abuse that took place. And so even though we're not thinking consciously all the time about that relationship that's fallen apart in our lives, our brains are actively hardwiring themselves in such a way that they're keeping the score. The trauma is still there in our bodies. Now, I find this fascinating and heavy all at the same time. And I think here in the church, it's, it's quite tricky to talk about this because on the one hand, uh, what I would encourage you with this morning is that if you have had any experience on that spectrum, anything from the severe trauma, a horrific experience of abuse, all the way down to something far more mild but still there in your body, the good news is that 
Christianity and the Bible offer you this vision of how to walk forward with Jesus, and we're going to talk about that. However, the flip side is that Christianity has at times been a little too flippant, or perhaps you've heard those teachers or those sermons or a parent or a family member who have suggested just quite casually that somehow forgiveness is the simplistic answer, right? If you could just forgive and move on, that's what Jesus wants. That's what we all need to do. So what we're going to try to do this morning in this conversation about forgiveness is to find a balanced way to both encourage you, even today, even this morning, if you have experienced some kind of painful relational brokenness. There is hope and healing for you as you walk down this path of forgiveness. But at the same time, what we want to be really clear in is that that path of forgiveness is not going to be a quick or easy solution, but instead is something we want to walk with you in at whatever pace you need to walk as we move down this path together. Okay, so in order to set the conversation and the stage for this, I think what I first want to do is talk about what forgiveness is not, so we can clarify a few myths about how forgiveness has sometimes been presented, and then we'll lean into the teachings of Jesus and we'll talk about what forgiveness is. So first, what forgiveness is not. I just want to go cover four myths for you. Three myths, actually. Uh, the first myth, to forgive, I have to say what happened is okay. Uh, forgiveness is not simply saying what happened is okay. It, in a very heavy study, I, I warned you this is a little heavy, uh, but I think this is helpful to sort of frame what we're talking about. Uh, the psychologist Janice Abrams Spring did a book called After the Affair. After the Affair. And Janice Spring's work involved working with couples in which an affair took place, and she was asking what would it mean if both couples want to do the work of forgiveness? What would it actually take? This is what Janice Spring had to say. We can't and won't just dust off an injury, pretend that nothing happened, and embrace the person who injured us. Regardless of what we may have been taught, a quick, one-sided, kiss-and-make-up response doesn't seem real or right. For genuine forgiveness to take place, we often need so much more. Okay, so first myth. What we're not saying this morning is that to forgive means to say what happened is okay. You can think about, clearly, in a marriage in which an affair took place, the first reconciling is going to be to, together as a couple, acknowledge that what was done by one to another was not okay. If that's myth number one, myth number two, to forgive, I have to forget. To forgive, I have to forget. I think there sometimes is this pressure that forgiveness is permission to just never think about something again. Like if the first pressure is you need to say it's okay, the second pressure is, well, why, why are you bringing this up all the time? Why are you still thinking about that? Why haven't you moved on from that time that that thing happened to you? Uh, one of my favorite thinkers on this question is the theologian Merzlov Volf. So if you've ever heard of Volf, he works out of Yale. He's one of the major theologians sort of on the contemporary scene right now. And yet his story is quite profound that he was born over in Croatia 
in what at the time was Yugoslavia, and his father had lived through a communist labor camp. So his father literally was imprisoned for an extended season of Mirzla Wolf's childhood. Uh, his father's in prison. His mother is a devout Christian. Because his mother was a Christian in the communist Marxist Yugoslavia at the time, it meant that his family was isolated, constantly persecuted. He, as a child growing up, was heavily ridiculed. He was bullied. There was even some moments of physical violence against him. So Wolf had this heavy, painful childhood of oppression. And yet, as he became, as he was studying theology, the question on his heart was, what does it mean for me to actually forgive these terrible, tragic things that happened to me personally, that happened to my family, that happened to my people? And as he reflects on this struggle to forgive, he argues that the most important thing is not to forget what happened, but actually to remember it rightly to remember rightly instead of to forget. He says, to remember a wrongdoing, to remember it rightly, is to struggle against it. Isn't that beautiful? If you think about it, to remember what actually happened to you is the very act that sets you up to struggle against it. I think this is so helpful for us, so helpful as we're moving into reconciliation, either an interpersonal reconciliation, someone in your life, a friend, a family member, for you to get clear, you've got to remember this rightly. We've got to get clear on what happened. Or if this is something bigger, if this was an experience from your childhood, a, a terrible abuse that took, that took place, the hardest part is to actually give yourself space in the right way to remember it well, particularly with someone who loves you or a therapist. So this is... The invitation, not only do we say it's not okay, we also must remember it and remember it rightly. Our third myth, to forgive, I have to trust the person immediately again. I know for me, this especially takes place in friendships that are very proximate to my life. Uh, this takes place with family members through which I'm working out very long and complex conversations around prolonged seasons of hurt that now are following extended seasons of trying to figure out what forgiveness even means. And the image uh, that I heard growing up as a child and that I've really held on to is that when you are hurt or harmed and you go to forgive, what that doesn't mean is that you draw close immediately to the person you've just forgiven. It's kind of like if you were to park at a shopping center or at a grocery store and the person next to you dings your car, right? I don't know if you've had that happen. It's one of the more infuriating, painful, vulnerable moments, and yet it captures well so often what hurt feels like, betrayal feels like. Something that is very precious to you has been injured, it's been hurt. But the silliness of this myth that forgiveness means immediately drawing close again would be the equivalent of you returning to the same mall, seeing the same car that hit your car last time you parked next to it, and once again parking right next to that very same car. It doesn't make sense. Instead, if you had that experience, what would you do? You would go to the very back of the parking lot. You'd create a lot of space, and you'd say, listen, I'm still shopping here at this store. I, I'm still in the orbit of connection with you but it's gonna take some time before I'm willing to park my car next to your car. 
Because these are our three myths. Uh, If that is what forgiveness is not, if it's starting to perhaps even in you right now stir up something, stir up some percolating question about that person in your life, that experience in your life, that relationship that is currently broken, then the question for us this morning is, what does it mean to forgive? If that's what forgiveness is not, what does it mean to forgive? So we're going to look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18. If you have a Bible, you can feel free to open up with me to Matthew 18. You can pull it up on your phones or it'll be here on the screens. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21, contains one of the more memorable phrases, teachings of Jesus. You've probably heard this teaching before. And yet, if I were to be totally honest with you, I think this is one of my least favorite teachings of Jesus. I think this one is one of the most casual, uh, least thought through teachings that are often just chucked out there in Christian circles. And what I'm grateful for, what we're going to discover, is that Jesus doesn't just give us this teaching you're about to hear. Jesus unpacks it. He moves more slowly through it. So this morning, I want you to to linger with me through the immediate disruption that Jesus is going to give you. Let's see how Jesus actually unpacks what he's saying. So first we find in Matthew 18, 21, Peter, the disciple, comes up to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? In Jesus's day, rabbis would argue about how many times a devout Jewish person was required to forgive. I do love the framing of that question. I'm going to be honest, that resonates with me. Like when I think about a couple people in my life, I go, right, how many times are we talking here? Uh, How many times do I have to go back to that same parking lot? And most rabbis suggested that it was somewhere between three and seven, right? This was the conversation. Is it three times? Three is a good, strong number. I mean, that seems quite generous. It seems quite forgiving? Or is it even more radical? Are we talking about seven times? Seven being the perfect number, the number of the days of creation, the number that reflects God's completeness. Uh, Peter is, is likely, if we put ourselves in the situation, probably patting himself on the back at this moment. Peter thinks he's being a pretty solid disciple. He's set Jesus up with a softball. Jesus, I'm thinking of forgiving someone. How many times Jesus should I do it? I mean, are we talking seven times? Uh, you could almost see Peter, you know, have his chest puffed up like this is the moment of recognition. The golden star will be placed on my spot in the disciples' standing. Yet, Jesus is going to answer far more radically than anyone in his day would have talked. Jesus says in Matthew eighteen twenty-two, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times times. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, you think about the person in your life who has harmed you the most, the person who drives you crazy, the person who never seems to get it whenever you do enter into a reconciling or conflict-oriented conversation. Think about how many times 77 times is. And yet, clearly what Matthew is suggesting as he highlights this choice by Jesus, is that Jesus isn't just saying 77 as the end. Instead, uh, some translations have 70 times 7. In the Greek, there's a little bit of ambiguity. The, the point is that 7's 
to seven, seven to seven, seven times. Jesus is saying, this is as many perfect and complete 70 times sevens that you can imagine. There is no end, is what Jesus is saying, to the need to forgive. Forgiveness extends into the very perfection 77 times of God. This likely would have baffled Peter. This likely would have uh, disoriented him. It would have disoriented those around him. No one in Jesus's day would talk that audaciously. And so, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us with this huge open-ended challenge, but he's going to give us direction as to how. How could someone forgive 70 times seven times? Jesus answers by offering us a story. So Jesus says in Matthew 18, 23 to 27, immediately following this teaching, he explains, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, the story is simple enough that we can track, but if you slow down a little bit more, a, a king, someone in a high, high position of power and authority that in most of Jesus' parables often represents God, is overseeing various estates. And in particular, there's one servant who seems to have a very pivotal or crucial role. In fact, that number that he owed the king 10,000 bags of gold, quite literally is 10,000, which is the largest number the Greek language had, talents, which is the highest denomination of money that the Roman Empire had. This number is so extraordinary that as scholars have sort of panned out what the various economic systems were in Jesus' day, it's probable that Israel only would operate with about 600 talents of revenue taxes that they owed Caesar every year. So this servant has gotten himself in so deep that this number of money that he owes this king is astronomically beyond any hope of ever repaying it. You cannot even get your head around how to dig yourself out of the hole that this person has found themselves in. So almost as, you know, a last case resort, a bankruptcy of sorts, the king decides he is going to sell this man and his wife and his children to recuperate the losses. Uh, again, most scholars would point out the sale of a slave in the Roman Empire would probably get you about one talent's worth of wealth. So quite literally, if these numbers are holding, it's like one bag of gold is what he's going to get back on the 9,999 bags of gold that have been lost due to this servant's negligence. However, something beautiful happens. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, you've heard just enough for me to know there's no way this servant is ever paying back the debt that he has accumulated. And yet here, in a profound unexpected twist. Jesus says the servant's master, the king, 
took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So this moment is so breathtakingly gracious, so breathtakingly compassionate, that inevitably, if you were an ancient audience listening to this, you couldn't even come close to imagining the kind of king, I mean, picture it today, the kind of bank or the kind of political leader or the kind of, you know, business lender that would be so gracious as to take this huge sum of money in our day, billions and billions of dollars, and say, the debt is no longer held against you. And yet here, simply from compassion, the king cancels the debt. However, the story is not quite done. In fact, something even more intriguing happens as you continue in Matthew 18, 28 to 34. Uh, the servant goes out, and as he goes, he finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now this clearly jars us as a listener. Clearly the only thing we can see is the extraordinary amount of graciousness with which this servant has just been released from debts that otherwise would have crippled him if not taken his life. And yet here, one of his associates, one of his servants, accumulates a debt that pales in comparison, though is still substantial. And instead of forgiving, instead of even having slowness or mercy, the servant, we're told, grabs him and chokes him anger and bitterness and resentment at being wrong accumulates in him throwing this servant into prison. Now, as we finish off the story from Jesus, we're told that when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I have canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Now, this story by Jesus is heavy. In fact, this is one of those parables of Jesus that I think probably should keep us up at night <laughs> just a little bit, that should cause us to sort of slow down and ponder what is it that Jesus is actually saying. And yet, if there's, any, if there's any gift, if there's any insight as to what way we can walk with Jesus when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus' clear point is that it is in relationship to a far greater debt that we have been released from that we could ever find the strength and the courage to bear other debts that have been incurred against us. And so if that's the case, the invitation for you this morning, the invitation for each of us, on any end of the spectrum of trauma, pain, hurt, or abuse, is to lean into what Jesus is saying with this invitation. So we go to the next slide. Forgiveness 
is the choice to cancel a debt. Forgiveness is the choice to cancel a debt. Now, I'm not saying that this choice happens quickly. I'm not saying that it happens easily. I'm not saying that the immediacy of the moment is what Jesus is really getting at. But what I am saying is that on some level, trauma in our bodies is a debt that we are carrying. It has actually been incurred against us when that pain, that harm, that abuse, those words happened. They have lodged themselves in you. You are carrying them with you as you move throughout your relationships and life. And so at some point, on some level, the invitation Jesus has for you is that that debt is a debt that you now are carrying. And the only way to release that weight is to actually release the debt that has been incurred against you. And here's the reason why you can do it. You can release that debt because you have yourself been released a far greater debt and burden than has ever been incurred over here in your life, in your story. Now, I know. I know that that is not easy. I know that that is not a simple invitation. But if we walk with Jesus, we begin to discover this is actually the only way that you will be free if we can learn slowly but surely to forgive. The author Lewis Smedes was an ethicist who wrote quite a lot on forgiveness. He has this beautiful quote where he says, Forgiveness means to set the prisoner free only to find the prisoner was you. Another way of putting it that I think is also beautiful is Anne Lamont, who herself walked through various stages of frustration in her life, uh, huge struggles with alcohol and addictions until she finally found her way back to God. Anne Lamont would say it this way, forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. This, this is costly, I know. The point is that the debt is actually real. It, it's going to cost you something to release the person whose weight you are carrying. And yet, surely, surely, you are the one who has been suffering from the debts you have been carrying. So what does it mean then to forgive? How could we forgive? What are the steps we could take to forgive? I have four simple steps, and then I'm going to wrap this up, and we're going to turn to a time of communion and worship to really lean in and receive whatever the Lord might be doing in your heart at this point. What could steps towards forgiveness look like for you today? Well, first, forgiveness involves admitting that I was hurt. Forgiveness first is going to involve you being honest and remembering rightly. You saying, I was in fact hurt when this occurred. This debt is real. In fact, I sometimes even find it helpful to say, this person owes me from the way they treated me here. Yet, if the first step involves admitting, the second step involves getting even more specific. Forgiveness involves naming how you were hurt. It's not just that hurt happened, it's remembering how the hurt took place. Uh, one mentor I had in my life who, in his own background, had a tragic experience of sexual abuse as a child within his own family. He talked about it this way. He said, I cannot heal what I will not name. I cannot heal 
what I will not name. If you have met with a therapist, if you do come forward for prayer, if you are leaning into any sort of forgiveness process in your life, at some point it's going to take you leaning into naming what happened against you. Yet, as we move through this naming process, at some point we find ourselves running up against the teachings of Jesus. And here in the third step, in the pivotal step, forgiveness will at some point in some way involve a decision to cancel the debt the person owes you. Now, if you remember where we've been on this complex conversation that we're trying to hold, we're not saying that you rush this moment. We're not saying that this means that you say what's happened against you is okay. We're not saying that you should draw back into relationship with the person who has hurt you. But at some point, at some point, you are invited by Jesus to cancel the debt, to release the debt that has been done against you. And for this to truly take place, fourth, it's going to look like reminding yourself of that decision over and over again. So if there's any hope for this in your life, if there's any path to chart, uh, I have just a simple breath prayer that I want to offer to you uh, as we prepare to turn to a time of communion, as you even explore what is God saying? What is God stirring? What is perhaps uncomfortable? What feels almost too much? Uh, Where do you feel anxious? Where do you feel afraid of what that releasing a debt might incur? Where do you feel perhaps hopeful that that weight could actually be lifted. Uh, In order to get us there, these last couple weeks, we've been having simple prayers using our breath that we can take with us into a week that could be the very prayers that you remind yourself in over and over and over again. And so this prayer this week looks simply like this. As you inhale, you will pray, God of forgiveness. And as you exhale, you will release by saying, help me forgive. So we're actually going to practice this now. We've been practicing these the last couple weeks. Uh, If you, I always say, just want to put your hands on your knees, sort of sit up straight. You can put your feet down. You can get into a position just to tell yourself, I'm going to spend just a moment in prayer. Uh, If you're comfortable, you can go ahead and close your eyes, although you don't have to. And as you begin in breath prayer, I always find it helpful to first begin by just paying attention to your first few breaths. It can especially help to breathe in slowly to the count of three. One, two, three, and then hold it for a couple seconds before releasing one, two, three. As you're breathing in and breathing out, you start to notice that your body does this act of gathering up and then releasing every day without you even noticing it. In fact, breath is the very means by which your body gathers up the resources it needs to survive, and then realizing that some resources remain which will not help you live, your body's going to release that carbon dioxide back out into the world. So as you're breathing, I'm just going to give you this simple prayer. You can practice it with me as we inhale together. God of forgiveness, we then exhale together, help me forgive. 
Let's do that one more time. As you inhale, God of forgiveness, you're now going to exhale. Help me forgive. <laughs> 